Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime and THR's chief TV critic, the amazing, the one and only, Dan Feinberg. What's up, Dan? How's your week? Well, like Chris Sale, I've decided to call it a season, and I'm now fully on the Dodgers bandwagon for the rest of the fall up through the playoffs. So, what does go this Dodgers! Mean, but what does this mean for our bet? It means I will still wear a Dodgers shirt as appropriate. I'm, in fact, ceding the bet to you. I I have not done the research yet on what the magic number is for the Dodgers to end up with a better record than the Red Sox, but I, I assume it's pretty much a mathematical certainty. Yeah. And thus, you can't see me right now, but I'm totally wearing Dodger blue by accident. Yes. Well, we'll put you in that jersey so- soon, Dan. I'm all aboard for uh, Dodgers and Max Muncie, and the Yankees coming in this weekend. It's a potential World Series preview i am pumped for baseball but that's not why you're listening to tv's top five you're listening for the latest in tv news which brings us to headlines let's get things going this week hbo renewed its emmy nominated drama succession for a third season and announced that the fifth season of dwayne johnson football comedy ballers would be its last Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, our spe- our special guest in a few segments will be Senator Elizabeth Warren, who will be discussing <laughs> the end of Ballers and her plan for Dwayne the Rock Johnson's future career plans. That's not accurate, but if Elizabeth Warren is listening, she's totally welcome anytime. Yeah. Elsewhere, Christian Serratos, the actress who plays Rosita on AMC's The Walking Dead, is in final negotiations to star in Netflix series Selena, The Story, which is a bio series. It's a scripted show. AMC says she'll continue to be a series regular on the upcoming 10th season of The Walking Dead, which typically wraps production in Atlanta around the holidays, whereas Selena is set to begin production in Mexico in September. That math doesn't add up, Dan. I'm vaguely... Still trying to remember which one Rosita is on The Walking Dead. That That's as far as I can go. I've now entirely run out of characters on that show whose names I remember. So, oh well. Fair assessment. In Netflix news, Wanda Sykes and Mike Epps will star in a multi-camera comedy about a working class family in Indiana called The Upshaws. Former Unreal showrunner Stacey Ruckheiser is adapting B.B. Easton's book 44 Chapters About Four Men as a dramedy series called Sex Life. Reese Witherspoon will exec produce a home organizing show for the streamer with the founders of the Home Edit because, you know, she's not busy enough. And now she has a show on Apple, two shows on Apple and one coming on Hulu with little fires everywhere. And now she's got an unscripted show over on Netflix. Uh, And rounding out the streamers news, Kevin Smith will serve as showrunner on a new He-Man anime series. Which I hear will pick up where the animated series from my childhood ended up as if I've been dealing with a 30 year cliffhanger on that series. I have not. Maybe some fans have. Yeah. Elsewhere, FX chief John Landgraf tells me that Hillary Clinton will not be a, quote, significant character in FX's American crime story impeachment. This is what I said, I think, last week or two weeks ago was probably correct. There is no reason why it should be her story. Yeah. And file this one under monkey business in one of my favorite stories of the year. Reporting this one was truly fun. I, I laughed more than anything. FX's upcoming Why the Last Man adaptation will feature a very, very, very familiar face to fans of the show Friends. Katie, the capuchin monkey who played Marcel, filmed the pilot for Why the Last Man as Ampersand, York's traveling companion. But there's a catch, listeners. Katie, Poor Katie may not be in the series as the new showrunners are figuring out if they would rather use CGI for Ampersand or a real monkey. What a bunch of nonsense. If you have the choice between using a real monkey and a CGI monkey, I don't really care what the liability and insurance issues are. Use the real monkey. But, you know, Dan Pita is also very upset about that. You want to know how much I care about that? Use the real monkey and treat the real monkey with respect. I think PETA could appreciate that as well. My favorite part was that John Landgraf recognized the monkey when he was watching dailies for Why the Last Man and said because John Landgraf was working in the current department at NBC in the 90s when Friends was on and he actually recognized Katie the monkey. So to me, that I love that story. Let's be honest. There are two working monkeys in Hollywood. There's Katie and there's Crystal. And they're, they don't really look all that much alike. Why did we not do this as a full segment again? Remind me, Leslie. I don't know, because it's just so much fun. <gasps> no, it should have been a full segment. That's how much fun it is. I don't believe we just wasted that on headlines. <sighs> well, let's wrap up and get into the segments. So, so closing out the week, the big trailer this week was The Morning Show. This week, we got nearly three minutes of actual footage, not just a, a set 
set tour uh, with some voiceover, but lots and lots of footage. It's the most high profile show that Apple has so far. And that's saying a lot considering they've got a ton of high name producers and a ton of, of top level talent attached. But there's a lot riding on the morning show. Dan, what did you think of, of the actual trailer? I think if you have the choice between using a CG monkey and an actual <laughs> monkey, you use the actual monkey. There is no question here at all. Um, no, let's see. Okay. Last week we talked about the stupid audio trailer this was better than that it, it still does to me look like a low-rent newsroom knockoff still that's that's what it looks like to me it could turn out to be something much better and that would be wonderful uh it looks like the actors are all engaged and interesting so sure whatever better than the audio trailer last week but still use the real monkey <laughs> well with all that out of the way let's dive into this week's top five number one Leading off this week, ABC announced the, quote, stars who will be competing for the upcoming 28th season of Dancing with the Stars. And one of them, former White House press secretary Sean Spicer, has been met with a pretty big backlash, Dan. Spicer will compete alongside Lamar Odom, James Vanderbeek, Bachelorette Hannah Brown, and former Super Bowl MVP Ray Lewis, among others. Dan, what do you think so far? All the attention right now is on Spicer. Which is great because it means that we're not talking about whether they should be having Ray Lewis on this, given certain things in his past. Um, Such as a murder investigation? Indeed. So, yes, under other circumstances, we would be totally talking about whether Ray Lewis should be on a family-friendly show. Instead, we're talking about... On a Disney-owned network. On a Disney-owned network. There are many reasons why we should be talking about that. Yeah, this is embarrassing, and it's stupid. And the process every year on who the heck the cast members are in Dancing with the Stars is is honestly it's part of the fun you know everyone tends to know a couple people in the cast and then, and then every- everyone has to look up in Wikipedia some of the others <laughs> and we all have our sort of spheres in which we know so okay maybe you're not a big NFL fan and you don't know who the NFL player is maybe you don't know who the Disney Channel star is etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's always the process so The game of how are these people stars is always what the game is. With Sean Spicer, what you are looking at here is a person who did 182 days on a job that in a perfect world verges on anonymous. I do not know the names of the three people who served as press secretary under Barack Obama. That is because they basically did their jobs. Period. Sean Spicer, in 182 days, was directly responsible for lies, Holocaust denial, and not in a casual way. He was dismissing aspects of the Holocaust, not, I think, because he is a Nazi or an anti-Semite, but because he is stupid. Sorry, pardon me. That is what he is famous for. That is what he is a star for, for 182 days of lying to the American people and poisoning the discourse in a way that will never be recovered in any of our lifetimes. And ABC is giving this person a platform to do the cha-cha and for us to go, oh, look at him. He's so light on his feet. Screw that. He does not belong on the show and he's not going to bring in any audience to the show. That's the other thing, because he's nothing. He is not a part of this administration. He is not a person who has direct political ties to this administration. He is the puppet who stood at a podium and lied for 182 days. That is who he is. That is what his stardom is based on. I am not saying that he should be brought up on war crimes and brought before a tribunal if he wants to get a job at a think tank or with lobbyists or whatever, by all means, it is utterly embarrassing that ABC is giving this guy a platform. And yeah, so I don't really have any thoughts about this, though. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, you are not the only one who feels strongly. Uh, Big Bang Theory co-creator Bill Prady tweeted, quote, Spicer lied repeatedly to the American public and literally defended Hitler. Actress Yvette Nicole Brown said his casting was, quote, very problematic. And others have threatened to boycott the aging unscripted series. Longtime host Tom Bergeron also responded to the controversy with a, with a lengthy statement in which he basically said he told the show's exec producers to see Dancing with the Stars as a joyful respite from our exhausting 
pressing political climate and free of inevitably divisive bookings from any party affiliations and went on to say that he agrees to disagree with the casting and hope that people would kind of tune in. Meanwhile, Sean Spicer gave an interview to The Hollywood Reporter's Rick Porter and was asked about it. And here's his quote. He said, I hope it will be a politics free zone. My hope is that at the end of the season, Tom looks back and realizes with what a great example it was of being able to bring people of a really diverse background together to have fun with each other, engage in a real. I don't care. This is all just like (laughs) it's just like it's all spin. It's like give me a platform. You know, he you know, what's also interesting is that. You know, Spicer runs his own businesses. He has a political consulting firm that supports Republican candidates for office and is also an advisor to a pro-Trump America first PAC. And, you know, he said he's not restricted from political activity during his time on Dancing with the Stars, which just I mean, listen, just don't do it like like Carrie Burke, ABC, Disney, all your higher ups. Just this is this is a bad idea. I also have to add, incidentally, that Tom Bergeron, bless him, is being completely disingenuous about this joyful respite from politics nonsense. Look at the people who have appeared on this show. They have had Rick Perry dancing. They've had Tom DeLay dancing. They had Tucker freaking Carlson dancing. They had Geraldo Rivera dancing. This is a show that does probably appeal to a middle America segment that is probably more conservative than other parts of the country. Um, But and pretending otherwise is foolish and silly. But this is more overt. This is more ridiculous. Again, any person out there who did a job for 182 days where their only achievement was lying and getting things wrong. So either lying or just being dumb and being factually inaccurate would not think that that was... Hugely factually inaccurate. Oh, hugely. Ridiculous. But yes, would not think that those 182 days were worthy of being described as a star or even really worthy of being described as having done the job at all. Like 182 days, I would not put that job on my resume under normal circumstances. It's... Ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, look, and I, I get it. You know, ABC wants to appeal to a large swath of the American public. And the way that you do that is, is you bring in contestants that that check different boxes. And I'm sure he, you know, Spicer checks a certain box, to your point, for middle America, for the Trump crowd. But it's also like, I mean, it, it's politicized a show that that doesn't need to be. And, it, and, you know, when you look at ABC's larger objective, which we've talked about endlessly on this podcast about how they really want to bring women back to this network, they want to reclaim their spot as broadcast number one network among women. I don't think Sean Spicer is going to help with that, but I am here for James Vanderbeek. And I look, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but I am all in in on the beak. But I'm not still not going to watch it for that. No, th- this is a show that is that is designed for recycling and in Sean Spicer this is a major hunk of garbage they've decided to recycle for absolutely no benefit of any kind that I can imagine yeah it's just become the latest hot button problem for ABC and they still have the rookie issue going on with investigations that we haven't heard anything from who knows at this point well Dan I I can't talk about this anymore you want to move on (laughs) let's move on to the second topic to literally anything else let's let's move on number two Batting second this week, let's check in on the state of late night. This week, James Corden inked a new two-year contract extension that will keep him as the host of CBS's Late Late Show through 2022. Corden joins Jimmy Kimmel, Samantha Bee, Trevor Noah, and Conan O'Brien with contracts through 2022. Stephen Colbert, Bill Maher, John Oliver, they're all signed through 2020 on their respective networks. And Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers are staying put at NBC through 2021. However, joining NBC's late night lineup will be YouTube breakout Lily Singh, who will take over the 1.35 a.m. slot previously occupied by Carson Daly. Joining us to discuss what to expect from Singh's new NBC show is Natalie Jarvie, THR's digital media editor and author of this week's Hollywood Reporter cover story on broadcast's only female late night host. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome, Natalie. So first question, can you sort of parse the only woman in late night claims? Because I know that there are sort of not necessarily asterisks, but it's kind of figuring... In broadcast. In broadcast. It's, you know, because the space is an expanding space. So what is sort of the significance of, of where she is coming from at this moment? Yeah, absolutely. So she's... Lily is currently the only female host on a broadcast late night show. 
Uh, there have been women who've hosted shows in the past, famously Joan Rivers on Fox a number of years ago, over 30 years ago. But uh, there there hasn't been a woman in broadcast late night in a really long time. So uh, that's kind of the first kind of historical thing that's happening here. On top of that, Lily is the first bisexual woman of color to ever host a broadcast late night show. Sure. Well, so a lot of things we got through that. <laughs> no, I think there's no question it's significant. It's just all about making sure that we get enough of the things that are first and unprecedented in because it's important. And, and also and the first YouTube star to really get a platform like this. I mean, can you talk a little bit about just where she came from and what makes her right for this job? Yeah, absolutely. So Lily has been posting her comedy on YouTube since 2010. She was a girl in Toronto who just finished uh, college or was about to finish college and needed a creative outlet. And she started posting rap videos and tutorials and comedy that really spoke to her experience as a Indian Canadian woman. And it caught on. People loved it as she found a huge audience, not only in Canada, but also internationally, especially in India. A lot of uh, young people really took to her kind of honest brand. She She's very forthcoming about her struggles with depression and with being an Indian Canadian woman and that, you know, what that means for her and, and her life experience. And so she kind of blew up. And, you know, over the last several years, she's gone on tour. She was the subject of a uh, documentary that aired on YouTube. No surprise there. You know, she became the face of Olay recently. You know, she's started to kind of make these strides, not just on YouTube, but but off YouTube. And, and breaking and, through and crossing over. Exactly. Yeah. Um, she'd recently um, kind of devoted more time to acting. Had appeared in HBO's Fahrenheit 451 adaptation, a small part, but was trying to do more of that type of thing. And then that's when NBC kind of reached out and, um, you know, th thought of her for this show because she had already kind of proven that she could do the sketches, she could do the interviews, she could do a lot of the things that you would need a, a late night host to be able to do. Well, this is obviously more your ballywick than ours. What was your awareness of her when NBC made the announcement? Were you like, oh, awesome, I love her, or were you like, who? No, she's she's one of these YouTubers that has really established herself and made a name for herself. So absolutely, I was aware of her and it made a lot of sense to me. I mean, Lily is not like, uh, you know, some of these other YouTube creators out there who, you know, do outrageous stunts and silly things to try to get all the likes and clicks. You know, she really thinks of herself as a comedian, as an artist and is, so she is has more, a brand. Yeah, she's and she's more creative and more thoughtful about what she puts on the Internet. So, you know, if, if NBC was going to take a bet on a, a YouTube creator, she's the one to take the bet on. Yeah, but I mean, let's talk about it. it is a big bet. I mean, Carson Daly was pretty established. Obviously, he held that, that post for, God, what was it? Like 17 years. Jesus. Um, but I mean, this is a, a big bet for NBC. I mean, what are they, they doing to kind of help raise awareness? I mean, I remember when that release came in and I was like, yeah, I only know her because you've mentioned her in, in a number of meetings here. Yeah, so let's, you know, unpack that a little bit. So first off, Lily is not the first YouTuber to ever have this type of an opportunity. Grace Helbig was given a show on E! after Chelsea Handler left. That didn't even air for a whole season, I don't think. So there have been attempts to kind of cross these YouTube creators over, and it hasn't necessarily worked. So you're absolutely right that this is a bet that NBC is making that she will bring a certain amount of her digital fan base over to their network. But it's challenging. The show airs at 1.35 a.m., so I don't know how many Gen Z kids and millennials are staying up till 1.30 to watch, you know, a late-night show on linear broadcast television. Especially when they probably are cord cutters who watch the clips the next day anyway. Yeah, I exactly. Think it's, I think it's that last part there that's the big part, is the on linear broadcast television part that <laughs> where the answer might be like 15. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So, you know, I, I think NBC's pragmatic about the fact that the reason to bring in someone like Lily is because late-night has largely moved to online. It's all about those YouTube clips the next day. It's all about going viral, quote unquote, and, and you know, kind of having, a, uh, starting a conversation that can last many days after the show actually aired on television. And that's something Carson Daly didn't do. Last Call was on, like I said, 17 years. 
not a lot of people ever talked about it. Uh, it had a YouTube channel I wasn't even aware of until I started reporting the story. I mean, he didn't have the same presence online as you know, a Fallon or a, a James Corden or some of these other late night hosts. And so once it became clear that that show was going to end, I think NBC realized they needed to find someone who could kind of establish that brand and that, you know, build a community is how they've kind of referred to it off linear television. Well, one of the things I found interesting in your cover story is the person who said that specifically she hasn't been one of those YouTubers who has, quote, gone viral. You know, she's just built up an audience steadily and organically over time. How basically is she planning on bringing over what she does on YouTube to NBC and to TV? Yeah. I mean, can you do that? I mean, it's a great question. She did tell me that while she wants this to feel of a kind with what people know from her, that she wants it to feel elevated and not just feel like a YouTube sketch. So she's she's very much, you know, thinking about that. Uh, she's hired a writer's room, so she's got a half dozen people now helping her hone her comedy for Late Night. These are people who come from The Tonight Show and The Late Late Show and The Kroll Show and Alternatino. So these are people with, you know, TV experience. And what's interesting about that is that Lily largely does all of this herself. I mean, she has help now, you know, a camera person and a, you know, an editor, but she's writing all her own sketches for YouTube. She's, you know, coming up with all the ideas basically on her own. So this is the first time she's being given resources. And I do think it will be interesting to see how how it goes now that she'll have a team of people who are going to kind of take her sensibilities and adapt them for late night and and maybe elevate them and you know edit them and kind of work to create you know the best possible product so what do we know about her actual show and, and what's i'm sorry what's the title again it's called a little late with lily singh it's a good title but is this gonna are we gonna see more of these like sketches that have you know one of the, the interesting things to me anyway about late night is so many of these sketches have become TV shows of their own for networks or for or on digital plays. I mean, Carpool Karaoke is a prime example. I think it's nominated for an Emmy, and that started as a segment on Corden. But will YouTube subscribers who are familiar with Lily will we see what what she was doing on YouTube on her show? Or is she going to look extent. at like sketches and things like that that yeah. can break out? So Lily's sketches on YouTube kind of fall into a couple different buckets. She does some kind of comedy sketches. She um, impersonates uh, kind of fictional versions of her parents, her who, her Punjabi Indian parents that, you know, is very popular with her fans. She also does a lot of these kind of comedic uh, music videos where she'll like dissect what makes Amigos rap video so great and kind of do her own rap video. She did a video recently about like what if Bollywood was you know, rap videos and, and kind of plays on those kind of different cultural stereotypes and um, kind of a disconnect between the, you know, the music she listened to growing up in, in Canada and in Toronto and, you know, the music of her you know culture. So I think we will see a lot of that kind of thing happen in her show. A lot of these kinds of sketches, you know, I, I think we'll see her do impersonations and she might bring some of those characters to late night. Um, she's also... You know, she speaks a lot about her personal experiences. And so she's not necessarily going to delve into politics the way that we've seen Stephen Colbert or uh, uh, Seth Meyers delve into politics. But you could expect that she'll talk about, you know, kind of social issues and she'll make commentary on those issues, you know, kind of from her own personal experiences. And will there be regular interviews as well, of course, or not? Regular interviews, yeah. So, I mean, she's structuring this very much like a traditional talk show. It's only a half an hour, but she will have a monologue that, you know, might kind of evolve into kind of sketch comedy as it goes along. It might not just be her standing there talking for five minutes straight. There might be a throw to a... a prepackaged segment or some sort of audience interaction, something like that. She'll have guests on to interview them. She might have musical performances. There will be some other prepackaged, you know, kind of bits throughout. The one interesting thing, though is that this is not going to be semi-live. She's not going to be taping this, you know, on at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, and then that episode will air later in the night. She's block shooting all 96 episodes of her first season during the fall, uh, starting in September. So the initial kind of run of shows uh, this fall will be pretty up-to-date, but when you get into the spring and late winter, it those shows will have been 
taped many months earlier. So she will really have to stay away from the kind of current affairs, politics, what did Trump tweet last night type of um, monologue and commentary. Is there an explanation for why they chose to want to do that? Yeah, I mean, so Lily didn't want to give up her YouTube channel and, and give up the work that she's doing elsewhere. So uh, it was part of the negotiation with NBC that, you know, this allows her to devote, you know, a few months to this show and then, you know, spend the rest of her year working on, she's got a production company, she's producing a bunch of projects and might star in some of them. She has now time to do that in the spring. She can continue to work on her YouTube channel. It was kind of a scheduling thing. And it does seem a little weird, but you have to remember that Carson Daly, the last uh, few years of his show, it was all these prepackaged segments, you know, an Ed Sheeran video of him performing in some club somewhere. And Carson would just throw to those segments from like a green screen. He wasn't, you know, actually hosting. And, and so this has always been a, a time slot where you can get a little bit more experimental with uh, the, the format of the show and what works best. I love you saying that we have to remember that <laughs> as if we have to remember that. That is truly <laughs> the first time I have heard anyone talk about what Carson Daly has been doing in a while. Yeah, well, I had no idea what Carson Daly was doing. No, some t- Carson Daly did some very good interviews and periodically I really would watch them on, on the YouTube, as the kids don't call it. <laughs> Uh, but I never actually watched it because 1.30 is past my bedtime. <laughs> it's past my bedtime, too. But, you know, yes, Carson Daly's show did not break out in that way. Uh, and so, you know, I think the big question for A Little Late is, can it break out in a way that Last Call didn't? And and can it do that when it's not going to be um, current affairs, you know, politics driven like a lot of late night is? Do we have a guest list or people that we think will be first people to be featured on the show? We don't have a guest list yet, but in talking with Lily, there's a number of people she'd like to bring on. I think we'll see a mix of kind of more traditional celebrities and, you know, kind of more her friends from the YouTube world. So, you know, on the kind of more traditional celebrity front, Lily has struck up a friendship with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson over the years. He um, is a big supporter of hers and was one of the people that she called when she was weighing whether or not to take this job. So I wouldn't be surprised if he popped up at some point. Uh, she's also very close with Hassan Minaj. There's some YouTube talent uh, like Jay Shetty, who's kind of a motivational speaker. She's got this really good friend, Humble the Poet, who is a fellow kind of Toronto YouTube creator. I, I think we'll see kind of an interesting blend of different types of uh, people. Yeah, sounds really, really interesting. Well, A Little Late with Lily Singh debuts Monday, September 16th at 1.35 a.m. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Number three. Up third this week, it's been another busy week for HBO Max. WarnerMedia's forthcoming streaming service has its first pilot slate, and it's pretty impressive. Looking at the pilot orders, the streamer is teaming with Jessica Jones showrunner Melissa Rosenberg for a prequel series based on Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic books, which were, of course, the source material for the 1998 feature starring Sandra Bullock. John Wells is exec producing a young adult drama called Redbird Lane, which will explore eight strangers who arrive in an isolated house and realize that something sinister and terrifying awaits them. And wrapping up the orders is perhaps the most interesting one. It's called Generation. It's a half-hour dramedy, and it's exec produced by Lena Dunham. And it's described as an exploration of modern sexuality that revolves around a group of high school students. It was created by a 17-year-old named Zelda Barnes, who will co-write the script alongside her father, Daniel Barnes, and exec produce alongside Daniel's husband, Ben. It's, I mean, I think she might be a 17 year old. I think she might be the youngest person to co-create a scripted show. I'm not sure, but it's pretty interesting nonetheless. And then of course, let's take a look at the feature side. HBO Max has its first major acquisition and it's a big one. The streamer picked up a, a movie called Let Them All Talk, an original comedy from Steven Soderbergh starring this actress you might've heard of, Dan, Meryl Streep. I have heard of her. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a busy week of news. I mean, and you know, to me the most interesting, the biggest takeaway here is that HBO Max is doing pilots, which we know most streamers don't typically do. Netflix doesn't do pilots. It's a, usually script to series across the board. Amazon has been doing pilots. I mean, they have a their development process seems to be much slower under Jen Salky than it was under Roy Price. You get to vote on our pilots that don't mean anything. But yeah, it, it's you know, it would it's curious to me that they would spend millions of dollars shooting pilots for stuff that may not get made, you know, for, that may not go the distance. Yeah, it is. It is funny. And it's also always funny to remind people of the Amazon pilot process that existed for a couple of years. Uh, it still kind of boggles the mind that that was the thing that 
happened the thing that we thought was a good idea and then a thing that they abandoned and now they're... I mean, it's a good idea on paper, but like it didn't really matter. Like they didn't take viewer feedback into account when they made pickups. Oh, it was all lip service. Yeah. It was it was ridiculous. And I don't think it gave anybody the additional attachment to any of those pilots that I think ideally should have been the reason for that. I think in a perfect world, that system would have allowed people to be like, "Ooh, I saw this early. I voted for it. It got picked up because of me. Therefore, I will continue to watch it. Instead, it yielded. Some shows that people liked very much, some shows that people forgot existed. and yeah, Some shows that were canceled after one season. Yeah, had re- yeah. It, it really ultimately had no purpose that it was supposed to have at all, and that's silly. So yeah, some of these sound relatively interesting. I, I feel like, has Practical Magic been developed for TV before? I feel like that's a thing that someone has done before. It wouldn't but... surprise me, I mean, because this is the era of reboots and remakes and revivals, so... You know, the other pieces that that's a little curious is they've picked up a number of shows straight to series already. So, you know, a Greek mythology drama, uh, a, a new take on Dune. I mean, all of these pilots have really established producers. John Wells has been around forever. He's very, very good. Obviously, Melissa Rosenberg, Lena Dunham has tons of experience. But I, I would be curious about why they these are pilots versus not straight to series orders like when you're when you're going to go the distance on a big high-end show like a dune take that to me feels like something you would want to get right before you spend that kind of insane money which again going back to amazon again was perhaps the worst thing about that process under roy price is that they had this whole development thing where they're like we're going to put them up and you're going to get to decide oh but we're also going to give a hundred million dollars to woody allen to make six episodes of something there was no way of understanding why one thing was getting one treatment and another thing was getting another treatment. And I don't think that did anything positive for Amazon in the creative community. So I would think that there would be at least some concern about HBO Max learning from those lessons or failing to. So I would be I would be worried if I were telling one group of producers here, we're giving you a straight to series order and another group here. Of really established creators. Yeah. You know, telling John Wells, <laughs> we, we've seen a couple things you've done before. But... Shameless ER. Come on. <laughs> but, but please make us a pilot. Yeah. And I mean, it's also important to, to remember that. HBO Max, the creative team running that is Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley, who both come from the broadcast world where pilot season was a regular staple. Of course, Kevin Riley is the guy who came out at TCA years ago and with a big illustration that beamed up on the screen that said RIP, a tombstone that said RIP pilot season. And now he's making pilots for for a streaming service that needs to launch with a live with with a suite of originals. Well, and he also established that TBS was going to be a comedy brand and now they're going to have Snowpiercer. So, the best laid plans of uh, Kevin Riley, Afghanigli or something to that effect, uh, apparently, you know, <laughs> things change. Yeah, it's 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 really curious to say the least. And this will be something that that we continue to monitor as, you know, they as more details about what they're going to do with HBO Max emerge and it's you know, just a, a quick reminder, it's slated to launch in beta in the fourth quarter of this year. Originals are set to debut sometime next year on the platform. I mean, stay tuned, I guess. Same same stuff. But uh, yeah, we'll see who they cast for some of these. I mean, let me just say again, if the choice is between a CG monkey and a monkey, <laughs> you cast the monkey. So by that metaphor, then you just give this you give these shows a pickup. You uh, don't do pilots. The, if you have the real monkey. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on to our fourth topic of the week. Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. This week, we're thrilled to welcome one of my favorite producers and showrunners, Jason Kadams, to TV's Top 5. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Kadams is the creator behind some of TV's most beloved family dramas, including Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. He started his career on My So-Called Life and counts the former WB Network's Roswell and Boston Public and About a Boy and Rise among his credits. Most recently, he shifted to focusing on shepherding other showrunners with work on Hulu's The Path, Pure Genius, and coming this fall, Almost Family on Fox. Jason, getting started, Almost Family is based on an Australian series called Sisters. Yes. What was it about the premise? Um, a family doctor who winds up fathering dozens of children right. that, that appealed to you. Right. Well, what was interesting was we were sort of, before we even found the format, we were interested in this world of 23andMe. It was just kind of like so many stories that I was hearing and people were hearing about suddenly finding out the person you thought was your father wasn't your father or 
a million different sort of variations on that theme. And it seemed to be something that was so compelling to think about that. Like, what if you found that out? Uh, what if you found out your family wasn't your family? And it seemed to be something that was particularly something that could only happen now, today, a contemporary story driven by sort of medicine and technology, but became really about, you know, an emotional story about family. And so that's what we were kind of interested in finding something in that world where we could focus on sort of identity, stories of identity. And then we found this Australian format, Sisters, which is a wonderful show that was um, very much right in the, you know, sort of wheelhouse of what we were already looking to do. And I worked with Annie Weissman on it, who um, I've worked with now on several shows, including The Path and About a Boy, whose voice was uh, so wonderful for this because she brings such humor to her writing and honesty and um, emotion. It felt like the perfect match for her. And so that's how we kind of got into it. And then we just started exploring you know, like you do when you do an adaptation, letting yourself be inspired by it, but then thinking about, you know, what story you want to tell about it. And that's how we started in on it. Well, what was that process like? What aspects of the plot, the tone, the cultural context, et cetera, did you have to change from Sisters? Well, you know, it's really a wonderful show. So it wasn't so much like, what do we need to change here? It, it was more driven by what is the story we want to tell? And, you know, I've done a few adaptations, you know, and, um, one thing that I find that's really important is to honor the source material, but not be beholden to it, not feel like you're going to use it as a crutch, use it as an inspiration, but allow yourself to go where you want it to take you. And I think there are certain things just tonally, it's a little bit different than the Australian format. Some of the plot moves are, are kind of different and it still, I think, maintains a lot of, you know, the sort of heart of, of what was in the original. One of the things that I love about so many of your shows, especially Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, is there's so much heart. It's all heart, almost. And I wonder, you know, there were storylines in Parenthood that were based on people in your family. Obviously, you know, you're married. That were a lot of the, the storyline from Friday Night Lights. That was a show that was praised for having one of the best depictions of marriages on TV. I wonder with this one, what's your experience with 23 and Me? And, and some of those genetic testing. Right. I don't have any personal weird experience with that. So it's not like something happened in my life where I, it inspired me to tell this story. I think it's more that these stories are inspiring me because hearing about them, hearing about suddenly being thrown this curveball in your life. In the case of this show, you have these, you know, three women who find out as an adult, that they're sisters. And I find that to be an incredibly appealing idea because it brings up all these questions. So what does that mean? Does it mean like because we're biologically connected that we're sisters or are we not? Do we want to embrace it? Do we don't? And of course, all three of them have a very different point of view on that when we start out the show about whether they want to embrace it or not and what they think of it. But what I find to be really beautiful about it is it's an excuse to tell a story about these sisters and about this family, you know, and ultimately it's not to me all that different than the territory that I was wanting to explore in Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. It's just a different way in. And it does give you kind of like a fun way in, you know, like we get to sort of, because it's not only about these three sisters, there are lots of others. And we start to explore that as we go to episodes and start to meet other people that come in and who are related to them. And it gives the show such a sort of sense of excitement and sort of like, um, you know, you don't know what to expect next. And I, and I really like that about it. But I also like that really what we're sort of going to be able to tell is the story about this unconventional family. Is there a version of the show that could have been done without the Timothy Hutton character where he's kind of, I mean, I, I don't really know how to phrase this, where, you know, looking at what he's done, it's yeah. effectively medical rape. Yeah. Is, is there a version of the show that could have been done without that, that could have just been like these three people come together and they find out through this 23andMe and it lists your name yeah. of who you're related to? And, you know, I know people who have met uh, family members that yes. way. Was that 
something that you guys discussed about and kind of maybe backing away from that, uh, I don't know how to phrase it, but this kind of gross part of the storyline? Well, this was this particular story and how this particular story gets launched. And so rather than shy away from it, we wanted to sort of tell it in a real and honest way. And so what you've seen in the pilot is the launching, the jumping off point of it. And we take that subject matter, you know, very seriously, even though there's a lot of humor in the show and there's a lot of heart and lightness in the show about, you know, stories about sisters and them coming together and and there's comedy in the show. But we do take the story of what Leon Beckley did very seriously and we want to examine it. We want to examine what was behind his choices and what he did at the very beginnings of when he was a pioneer in that field. What are the possibilities to be able to do now? What people know now were very different. It really was the Wild West. It was the very beginning of that field. And we want to sort of delve into what was behind his choices. We want to show that there are serious consequences for his actions, but there's also the complexity of the story, which is these sisters find each other and they need each other. And it, maybe they find each other out of a terrible deed that somebody did, but they do find themselves. So I find the complication of that interesting. And um, I think the story of, like you brought up Friday Night Lights, one of my favorite characters in Friday Night Lights is Buddy Garrity. Now he didn't do anything as terrible as that, as what Leon did. But he starts out as a villain in the show, and he starts out as somebody that you just, you know, look at as the antagonist. Over the course of that show, you start to understand him and see him as a husband and a father. You know, you see him for all his foibles. You see him as a man, and you come to see a three-dimensional person, and you understand him in a way that you never thought we would—you never might have imagined we would investigate that guy in that way on the show— so I think there's a big story here to tell about this guy, a guy who doesn't really at the beginning understand the um, moral implications of what he's done, but it doesn't mean he can't get there in time. Well, I'll sort of bite on the, the Buddy Garrity analogy there because I'm, I'm intrigued by it. What do you think the length of time was that was required for the Buddy redemptive arc? Like, how, do you think you could have done it? flat out in one season, you know, did it require three, four seasons before you, you feel like people were ready to embrace that character? Well, I think Leon might take a few seasons, you know, I mean, and, uh, and I think that's okay. To me, intelligent, the beauty of it is everything that happens after the pilot. You know, the pilot launches something, but it's the tip of the iceberg. It's just the beginning. And there's a lot of people who say like, oh, something will never live up to the pilot. The pilot was so great. And to me, it feels like the pilot is just the beginning. And the exciting work is to really start to delve into and get underneath these characters and watch them evolve and change and grow. I think that will be a very interesting story to tell. I'm interested in telling the story of Leon and Julia and seeing what happens. How can she forgive him? Does she forgive him? The complications of having somebody who has betrayed you in such a way but that you still love. And, you know, you can say it's black and white and I take away all my love for this man. But I don't think that's true either. So I think it's it's very complicated in a good way. Now, you've been sort of very we're going to talk about the other different platforms that you're working on and floating around at this point. But you've been a proponent of broadcast television and your last series rise lasted only a season. I'm curious what takeaways you were able to gain from that show and that process and sort of what where network television is now versus yeah. maybe where it was in Friday Night Lights. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, I was very saddened that Rise didn't continue, to be honest with you. And I thought that it had all the ingredients that those other shows you mentioned had. And had we been able to continue, you know, the show would have continued to deepen. And, you know, television is, the landscape is changing constantly. Broadcast television is, in one way, there's a lot of opportunity now in broadcast television to find a way to crack it in, in a way. I also feel like I still love what I think is the potential for a great show on broadcast television. But, you know, it's challenging if you do a show anywhere. It's not just broadcast. It's challenging that there's, I mean, you guys probably know way better than me how many shows there are out there. How do you give your proper attention to a show? And to me, that's what I think I and other creators are probably thinking a lot about is like those questions of like, when you think about doing a show and taking something on, 
how does it separate itself from the pack? You know, the big opportunity right now in television is it's such an expansive world and you can do a show about anything and all the barriers that used to be about, oh, you can't do a show about that. You can't do that. You can't do make that move in a show. That's all off. The, you know, anything, anything's on the table now. You can do a show about anything and anybody. And that's wonderful. The challenge is just the incredible amount of television that's being done and um, how to do something that you feel is going to break through. You know, there's so many shows like I watch now and I'll watch them and I'll be like, oh, that was good. And I don't watch more than two or three episodes. And that just is a new phenomenon. You know, like if I, you know, it used to be you found a show that was good, you'd be like there. You sing from the rooftops about it because you don't want it to go away. That's right. And now there's so much stuff that is worthy of our attention. And, you know, none of us have the bandwidth to watch all of it. So when you look at it from the point of view of the person producing and creating and finding those things, you're, you're sort of looking for, well, what is it about this show that makes me watch through to the end of the season or versus the ones that are like, well, that was good, but it doesn't engage me in that same way. You recently signed an overall deal with Apple taking you out of the broadcast system where you've been with Universal Television since Friday Night Lights. What was it about going to Apple, who we still don't haven't really seen a whole lot from? We don't have a launch date. We don't really know what any of those shows are going to look like. Yes. It, it remains the you know one of the biggest multi-billion dollar questions in, in the TV landscape. Right. right. Look, you're reunited with your former uh, True Jack head of production, Michelle Lee, over there. Yes. Was that the appeal of going to Apple? Or there was are a lot just... of things that were appealing. Certainly being able to work with Michelle and Zach and Jamie, who I have not worked with, but have been talking about working with for many, many years. So the creative team is fantastic. I was excited about the challenge of doing something new. I've loved everything I've been able to do at Universal and to you know work with them for all this time. But you know the idea of being toward the very early part in the beginning of something that seemed like it was a good fit for me creatively and seem like what they are wanting to do there feels like it's aligned with the kinds of shows that I have done and I like to do. So I'm really excited about it. I'm also, you know, starting slowly because I have still have almost family and two other projects that I'm still working on and very much involved with. And those two other projects are Away? Well, there's Away, which is a show for Netflix, which is we start shooting in a few weeks, and Edswick is directing the first episode. Who you worked with on? um, I worked with my first show on My So-Called Life, and one of the other producers is Matt Reeves, who I worked on on the first screenplay I wrote, The Pallbearer. And so it's like an insane gathering of everybody I've ever known in my life. Um, Jess Goldberg, who I worked with on The Path. Andrew Hinderaker, who worked on The Path and Pure Genius with me, created the show. And then many, many other people. It just was a weird alchemy where all of these people wound up working together. And it's it's a really beautiful show. I'm so excited about it. Uh, Hilary Swank is starring in it. Josh Charles is co-starring. And it's about the first manned mission to Mars. And it's, and Hillary is the commander on the on the ship. But the thing that's really beautiful about it is it's really... A love story between her and her husband, Josh Charles, and trying to stay connected to her family from a distance. So I'm excited about that one. And then you also have on the spectrum a pilot at Amazon. So you've got business at Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. That's pretty rare in this climate. Yes. You know, on the spectrum is a show that's in Israeli format. It's a absolutely beautiful show, and it's about three young adults with autism who are roommates. And it's a show that's really just about their lives, trying to figure out how to find work and love and friendship and be as independent as they can be. And there's humor in it. And it's also sort of at the same time kind of heartbreaking. And um, we've cast actually three young actors with autism to play the three leads. And we start shooting that soon. So, yeah, there's a lot it's another <laughs> there's a lot going on, but there's a, also it's all very, very exciting. And obviously that's a subject that, that's very, very close and important to you. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit here. Well, you know, when I did Parenthood, I included the storyline of Max Braverman, who has Asperger's, and that was inspired by my son, who was about a little bit older than Max when we started that, and now he's... A young man and he's about to go into the age where all these 
characters on the spectrum are. And so the theme of independence and coming of age and figuring it out is uh, very, you know, kind of relevant now because I'm thinking a lot about it, you know, with my own family situation. But the great thing about that show is, like, if you think back about when you had your first apartment and you were trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life and who you're going to be with, everybody's a mess at that point. So, you know, I think it's it will be extremely kind of a real way in and it'll be very much a real way to connect to it, whether or not you have a connection to that particular population. You know, I think it's going to be really exciting to do that. Well, now, before you guys were on the TCA stage today, uh, there was a Beverly Hills 90210 reboot or whatever the heck it was. On the podcast, we had Josh Schwartz, who's bringing back Gossip Girl. We are in an era of television in which what is dead is never in any way dead. that's right. And it happens that the properties that you've done best with are these properties that really are almost inherently easily rebootable, all things considered. Like a Friday Night Lights, you could just pick up with any group of kids, right. any coach who you believed in. Yes. Is that something that ever goes through your mind? You know, I don't need to tell the Coach Taylor story anymore because then we'd have to go through with all these people, but I can tell a story in this universe that would be comparable in theme and scope. It's not, I don't think about it every day. I think they're actually doing a movie of Friday Night Lights, which I'm not that involved in, but I think it is it is that what you're talking about. It's not it's not a television show, it's a feature, but it is, you know, doing another Friday Night Lights with another team, another coach in another town. So yeah, I think that is an idea that could be, you know, kind of replicated. I'm so happy with what we were able to do on Friday Night Lights, you know. So I'm not jumping into try to do it again. It's not like I walk around saying, oh, if I, we'd only done that episode, you know, I feel like very lucky that, you know, in a show where we almost got canceled after season two in that writer strike season, we got to go on and not only do the next season, but do through season five. We knew from season four that season five was going to be the finale. So we were really able to do anything that we wanted to tell it's, it's like we, we we were really able to end that show in the right way and so you know it's not like I feel like oh I I want to redo that yeah <laughs> it, it ended I mean I'm obviously very biased here but it ended perfectly thank you um thank as you. did I think Parenthood which is to me one of the most satisfying series finales I've seen that's not to say I've seen everything but um <laughs> talk a little bit about maybe going back to parenthood and and doing whether it's a special or an update something about where the Bravermans are now now. is that something that you've considered I know there was some buzz about it it. you know I love that idea because I think there's stories left to tell and what I'm interested in seeing is sort of like that you know next generation where are they now I mean I'd like to see where Max Braverman is now you know and Amber and Hattie and all of them, you know, so it depends on like so many people's schedules kind of coming together. But, you know, it would be pure joy to go, even if it was just to do a, a one off and do like a two hour or something like that. I would also read it in comic book form as long as it existed in some form <laughs> and you wrote it. <laughs> you know, kind of wrapping up here a little bit and, and looking ahead to the future, you know, you've shepherded a lot of writers in your career. And you continue to do that with Almost Family. You know, you mentioned the people that you've worked with many times. But I wonder, you know, in this climate where showrunners like yourself are getting these big overall deals, and a lot of them are because you are able to so skillfully help groom and mold the new wave of showrunners of tomorrow, how do you balance? Like, how do you decide, like, this is something I want to write for me. This is something I want to, I want to shepherd another writer on. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the balance like? Well, look, you know, everybody has their own way of doing it. My way of doing it has always been, it's about very much being driven by the particular idea and not trying to go for like being like a volume business. Weirdly, you know, when you talked about all the shows that were coming up, it was a fluke because, you know, there are three shows out of developing three, you know, so normally when you develop, you know, you get, you know, you have to, law of averages is nothing actually happens. Yeah. I mean, TV is a business of failures. So, you know, it just, it worked out that all of them happened and they were all projects that I loved. Um, You know, Away is inspired by an article written by Chris Jones for Esquire, I believe, that Matt Reeves brought to me 
years ago. And, you know, it's something that we've wanted to do and have been passionate about for, but, you know, for, I don't know, four or five years at this point. And it took that much time to sort of find the right team and to get the timing right and bring Netflix into it as a partner. So I really try to come at it from, if it's a story I need to tell and I have to tell, then I would do it. And then it becomes a question of, is this a story that for me to write or is it for somebody else? But I'm not really like looking to be in like the volume business. I'm looking to just sort of do the things that I'm deeply passionate about. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Our guest has been Jason Kadams, and uh, Almost Family will premiere on Fox on October 2nd. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include the third season of 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, the final seasons of Power and the Affair on Stars and Showtime, respectively, the fifth season and final season of HBO's Ballers, and YouTube turned Showtime comedy on Becoming a God in Central Florida. Dan, it's a pretty weird mix this week. What you got? It is. It's a it's a strange assortment of things, some of them kind of high-profile uh, shows that maybe aren't necessarily in my critical wheelhouse. So the final seasons of Power and the Affair are both going to probably go by without my interest or anything, though I have seen the premiere of the new season of Power. It's very eventful. Uh, That much I can actually tell you. It had been long enough since I watched the show that when stars screened it at press tour, I was shocked to discover that apparently uh, Turtle from Entourage is on the show and has been for multiple seasons now. So goes to show how much attention I've been paying. Uh, TV, man. It's so true. And apparently the affair contains a storyline that is in a post-apocalyptic Montauk in the future. So... I'm sorry, what? There's apparently a storyline in which Anna Paquin plays somebody from the main storyline's daughter, and it is set, I think, 20 years in the future after an environmental disaster in Montauk. Again, this is only from press releases that I know these things and not actually from watching it. I have seen the premiere of Power. I have not seen the premiere of The Affair. I have also not seen any of 13 Reasons Why on Netflix because it has not been made available to critics. You can just draw your own conclusions from that, and I suspect that they're probably going to be somewhere resembling correct. And yet I will probably watch a couple episodes of that this weekend out of self-hatred. But if you don't hate yourself, and I strongly recommend not hating yourself, uh, you really might enjoy On Becoming a God in Central Florida on Showtime. It's a dark comedy about multi-level marketing schemes, which does not necessarily sound like the most sexy of storylines, but it's actually very well handled. And uh, Kirsten Dunst stars and is quite wonderful. I would expect that she is going to be in Emmy conversations or at least Golden Globe conversations for this one. Uh, And I think when it's funny and kind of quirky and outlandish, I think it works fairly well. When it becomes a little bit more serious, it becomes a more conventional anti-hero crime thing that doesn't interest me as much. So as I've told people, when it's actually humming and moving along, it feels a little bit like a female-centric Breaking Bad with a pyramid scheme twist. When it gets too dour and bogged down in its own stuff, it feels a lot more like Ozark. But if you happen to love Ozark, you might like either variation of it. This is also a perfectly fine time to catch up on a lot of things that have had finales recently, some of which are among my absolute favorites. This past week was the finale of Pose, which made made me cry. Likewise. Um, And it totally could have been a series finale. And honestly, I would say perhaps felt too much like a series finale. But it, it won't be. It's yes. been renewed for season three. Thank yes. God. Yes, it is definitely. It is not the series finale, but it will set a bar where whatever they do as the series finale, both A, can't end the way that it did, which probably a series finale could have done, but also would have to exceed that, and that will be a challenge. So Pose, a show that actually did have a series finale this week, uh, was FX's Baskets, 40 episodes utter gem of a series. One of your favorites. One of my favorites. Louis Anderson just simply giving a an all-timer performance in this show. And he already won an Emmy, so I can't say, oh, not getting enough respect. But it is a, a wonderful performance in a show that's really full of great performances. Zach Alphanakis, wonderful in two roles. Martha Kelly, amazing deadpan. And the finale, while 
FX only announced it was the final season about two thirds of the way through the season. It's fairly clear that Jonathan Crystal knew either that it was coming to an end or that it could be coming to an end. And it is a completely satisfying finale that brings the series around full circle. It's not a show that's going to be for everyone, because if it were a show that were for everyone, it would probably have run more than four seasons. But you should give it a look. It's really worth checking out. And I'm going to miss me some baskets. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. We'll be back next week with more headlines and the latest news and hopefully another showrunner spotlight segment. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. If you like us, you should definitely subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you really like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, write a review of us. You can always talk to either of us on Twitter. We're happy to converse, uh, chat, hear your compliments, your critiques, etc. And, you know, just because this week we didn't do a full segment on a monkey, if you want us to do a full segment on a monkey next week or in the future and you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.